something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. So look, we're in week three today of a series that you saw on the screen a minute ago. It's called Identity Crisis, and we're looking at, at Paul's letter to the uh, Ephesian church in Asia Minor, the church at Ephesus. We finished up chapter one last week, and in chapter one, Paul brought us some really, he made some really bold truth claims and they, he brought those to the table and then he assured the, uh, the Ephesian believers, uh, the, the folks in Ephesus that were believers, he assured them that he was praying for them, constantly praying for them and lifting them up to the Lord and he prayed for about three things for them. He prayed that their eyes would be open to, to see, he called it spiritual enlightenment, that they, their eyes would be open to see a few things. One of those things is that they would begin to see and understand the hope that they had been called to, the hope that the Lord had chosen them and called them to, and He wanted them to find hope in that. And then He, he wanted them and He prayed for them to understand, and, he, and this is really for us too, to understand just how much God loves them, just how much He cared or cares for them, that how, what His affections were towards them. And then the, the last thing is that he prayed for them to, to begin to get their arms around to understand the power that was available to them and that that power was rooted, was seated in, was found with the basis, the foundation of the power for a believer is found in the fact, the fact that, that Jesus ran alive out of that grave. It's all about the resurrection and Paul wanted them to get their arms around that and to understand that today we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to going to be at the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to begin to unpack about the first 10 or 12 or 13 verses. And in chapter 2, in this chapter, Paul, towards the end of it, uh, he kind of tells us that he's, he's likening the body, he's comparing the body uh, to, to a temple, to a spiritual temple. And he says in verses, and we're not going to be in 19, 20, and 21, but I want to tell you what it says there. <coughs> in, uh, in verses 19 through 21, he says to the believers there. He says, you're not strangers. You're not strangers. You're fellow citizens with the saints. And who are the saints or the believers? So he says, you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. And you're growing into, he tells them, a holy temple, a spiritual temple in the Lord. So today, we're going to talk about the what's and the how's and the why's uh, about this holy temple that Paul talks about in chapter 2. First, what? I want to give you a couple of what's and a how and a why. 
Um, the first what is, and, and let me ask you this too. Does everybody have one of these? I hope you do. If you don't, we need to raise your hand or something. I want to get this in your hand. This is our worship guide, and it's got the, the passage that we're going to kind of be going through, and it's got a few fill-in-the-blanks, and it's got a little, a little short little Bible study for you to do during the week. Anyway, the first what is what we once were. All of us, what we once were. It starts in verse 1. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, Remember, Paul's talking to believers here. Verse 1 says that we used to be, we once were dead in our sin. We were dead. He doesn't say we were sick. He doesn't say we had a cold. He doesn't say we woke up not feeling good. He said we were dead. We were dead. And we were dead, it says, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I know that when sometimes when people hear that, their first response is like, well, I wasn't that dead. Um, I, this dude sitting next to me. He's way deader than I am. I just wasn't that dead. I want to ask you a question, though. And this is going to get a little, I was going to say gross. I don't know if that's the right word or not. But let's say that I took you, we all went to, on a field trip to a mortuary. And we went downstairs in the mortuary where they, where they embalm the bodies in the mortuary. And, and there was two tables there. And there was a dead guy on this table, and there was a physically dead guy on this table, physically dead guy on this table. And... They're being undressed and they're being prepared. They're being prepared to drain their bodies of blood and be filled up with the embalming fluid for the funeral and for the burial. One of the dude, dude A over here, he's been dead three days. Dude B over here, he's been dead for three months. He's kind of beginning not to smell so great. He, he's rigor mortis has set in. I got a question. Which is the deader of the two guys? They're, they're neither one. one. One guy... You know, one can look good and be dead, and the other can, can look like a freak show and, and be dead. But neither one of them are deader than the other one. There's not degrees of, of deadness. The definition of death is the absence of life. The definition of death is not like how ugly you look in the absence of life. Men without God are dead. The text says men without God are dead. Some can look good on the surface and be dead. Some can look okay and be dead. And then sometimes you just look crazy ugly, and, but, but you're dead. Regardless of the, of the degree of our decomposition, we were all once dead before coming to Christ. Y'all, one of the spiritual blessings that Paul talked about in, in chapter 1 was the forgiveness of sins and the redemption provided before by Christ. And he starts off uh, this chapter, chapter 2, by digging into that thought about redemption a little deeper. Here's what he says. He says, we're dead. And he's clearly not talking about physical death. He's, he's, he's talking about being spiritually dead, but the text, the Scripture, hasn't really defined what, what that means quite yet. But we know that it's not our heart stopped, no brain activity, cessation of physical existence. We know that's not it. 
And we know that because there are people who are physically alive but spiritually dead. The, the, the foundational, the fundamental characteristic of spiritual death seems to be this separation, being separated from God, being alienated from God because of sin. Later on in the chapter, he talks about the consequences of spiritual death, but for, for now, he's just really giving us a fact. He's stating this fact that all of us were once spiritually dead. There's some other scripture that Paul writes that kind of points to this too. Look at Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When Jesus gives us new life. We're reconciled. Spiritual death, we're reconciled. When we're, when we're saved, when we're born again, we're reconciled. We're reconciled when that, if you think back in the garden, and the relationship with the Lord was wrecked by the sin, this text, we're given new life. We're reconciled. That relationship that was broken is now reconciled. So spiritual death has got to really be um, a, a state of being unreconciled or separated or cut off or spiritually alienated away from God. And the penalty for, for that unrecon, uh, unrecognized, excuse me, unreconciled state, it's eternal separation and destruction. That's the penalty. Romans 3.23 says what? All of us have sinned. Every one of us have sinned. Romans 6.23 says the penalty of that sin that all of us have done is what? It's death. So number one, we were... Once, every one of us, at some point, we were once dead in our sin. Then number two is this. We were once influenced by Satan. So verse 2 says this. Beginning, at, beginning in verse 1, we were dead in our sin. Verse 2 says, In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's verse 2. Here Paul's describing... Y'all, the way that we lived when we were estranged from God. We lived like the world lived. We lived according to non-Christian values, according to a non-Christian ethical system. And that does not mean, y'all, that, that non-Christians even realize when you were lost. It doesn't even mean that you realized that those values were created and, and energized by Satan. The truth of the matter, in fact, most of us probably would have no idea, would deny that that was even the case. But Satan is a deceiver. And here's the reality. The deceivee does not realize that the deceivor is deceiving them. It's the nature of deception. If you're being deceived, you don't know that you're being deceived. And that's the system and the... The, 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 the community, the society, the, that's what Satan sets up. He's the prince of the power of the air. And most of us would deny, as we were when we were uh, once slaves to that, that that even was the case. But Satan, again, he is a deceiver. And he places things in front of us in our sinful condition that we find attractive. He doesn't come at us with a pitchfork and a cape and horns on his head. 
He doesn't. He puts things in front of us that we find attractive. And then we chase after those things as if, as if they were our idea. That's the way the, the lost world, that's the way the world works. It's almost like the deceiver, and again Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. It's almost like he creates this atmosphere. He creates this, uh, this spirit that encourages us to have ungodly attitudes, ungodly uh, desires, uh, ungodly uh, actions. And it's, it's much like the same way that a spirit of enthusiasm that you would find at a University of Georgia football game. That spirit of enthusiasm. And it might encourage us to embrace the attitudes and the spirit and the actions of a rabid dog fan. It's very similar that we cheer and we yell and we jump up and down and, and we're, we're influenced by the spirit of enthusiasm that is only available in Athens, Georgia. It's that kind of a thing. But under the spirit of Satan's kingdom, we act in disobedient ways. We're influenced by that. And we act in disobedient ways that maybe we wouldn't normally follow. So we were once, we were dead in our sins. And at, at one time, we were influenced and deceived by Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And then number three is that we were once objects, the text says, objects of God's wrath. This is in verse 3. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this atmosphere that the deceiver sets up out in the world, this spirit that he sets up out in the world that we live in, that atmosphere that he sets up, it says this. It says, if it feels good, do it. It says you can do whatever you want. You get to choose. God created you with a chooser. And you get to choose whatever you want. You're autonomous. And you know what? You are autonomous. Autos means self and nomos means law. Self-law. You are in, the deceiver is going to say, you are in control of you. you got total control. You can do whatever it is that you want to do because you're autonomous. And specifically in verse 3, this atmosphere motivates us to gratify illicit desires. Whatever those are. Whatever those illicit desires are, the passions of the flesh, Paul calls them, the desires of the body and of the mind, we were once controlled by lust. We were. And because we were controlled by lust, we were therefore objects of God's wrath. The passions of the flesh, that sounds sexual. Maybe it is. It's part of the deal. It could be the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body, it could be acting on same-sex attraction. It could be acting on, on anything that is outside of the parameters of what God has designed. God has designed a man and a woman in a marriage union. And the physicalness of that is intimate and it is beautiful. And God says anything outside of that is not. It's outside of His will. So it could be things like that. It could be hundreds of other things. Anything where you are pampering the flesh so that you'll do something that's contrary to God's will. Think of it that way when you read about the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind and the passions of the flesh. Most of the time, I think that the wrath uh, of God, it plays itself out 
in just this natural cause and effect relationship. This natural cause and effect consequences to violating His will and His principles. You know, we are free to choose. We are autonomous. You can do whatever it is you want. So you're free to choose, but you're not free to choose the consequences. The consequences are going to be whatever they are. You don't get to choose those. But you do get to choose what you do when your feet hit the floor every morning. Galatians 6, 7 tells us that we reap what we sow. For example, if we're sexually immoral, potentially we can contract a sexually transmitted disease. If we live our whole life spewing hatred and anger and, and fussing and fighting all the time, probably we're going to see hatred and resistance among the people kind of in our world. Y'all, so at one point in time, every single one of us, we were dead in our sins, every one of us. We were influenced by Satan, and we were controlled by our flesh, and we were objects of God's wrath. And look, that's the first three verses. They are probably the most depressing three verses of any, anywhere in the Scripture. And so it's against that backdrop, that painting this picture, it's against that backdrop which is pitiful and depressing and bleak, that Paul gives them, the Ephesian believers, he gives them, and he gives us, the most incredibly good news ever. So now look at this what, because that's where we're going to be in verse 4. What God did. We saw what we once were. Let's see what God did. So here comes the good news, verse 4. But, thank the Lord for buts. It's the name of this message. Thank God for buts with one T. But God, but God, so whenever you see that kind of, that word in Scripture, it's pointing us back. This and this and this and this, this, but God, being rich in mercy, but God just merciful, no, rich in mercy, because of the love, no, not just the love, the great love, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I believe He's done three things for us. Number one is this, He loved us. Verse 4, because of the just love, no, the great love. Because of the great love with which He loved us, God's mercy and love holds back, restrains His wrath. He refrains from, from punishment. Did I just hear a dog bark? Okay, I'm so aware of things. Not that it threw me off. He refrains, y'all, from punishing us. Even though we're sinners, even though we deserve that, He refrains from punishing us. I think that His mercy flows out of, or is a direct result of this incredible, passionate love that He has for us. Y'all, He desires good for those He loves. He does not desire evil for you. He does not desire bad for you. He desires good for you because He loves you. So number one, He loved us. Number two, He liberated us. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He's rich in mercy because He loves us. He loves us and He was rich in His mercy. Even when we were dead, not sick, dead in our trespasses, He did what? He made us alive. He made us dead, not sick, and He makes us alive. Verse 5 contrasts 
being dead in sin, dead with sin, dead through sin, with being made alive with Christ. And that, in the text, it could kind of be an image of, uh, of res- pointing to the resurrection. It could be pointing to, to folks' conversion experience or to their baptism or some combination of those three, resurrection, conversion, getting saved, or baptism. But look, Paul is not a systematic theologian that's given us bullet points for our head knowledge. That's, he's a missionary, and he's trying to persuade people. That is what Paul is doing. That's what the Scripture is doing. I believe this language points to kind of all three, resurrection, conversion, and baptism. Why? Because they all represent a new beginning. They all represent a new beginning. We're called, what are we called over and over in the Scripture? Believers are a new creation. We have been born again. Romans 6, 4, Paul makes a similar kind of connection. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we've been buried with Him, with Christ, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too may live, what? A new life. There's newness. We're a new creation. We're born again. Colossians 2 has very similar language as well that links baptism and death and the resurrection. But the point that Paul's making here, it is not a baptism point. It's not. I don't care what anybody says. That is not the point. It is that Christ was made alive on Easter Sunday. Did He walk out of that grave? Was He alive or was He not alive? He walks out of that grave Easter morning alive. And so because of that, they and we are also made spiritually alive when we're saved until the end of time. So He loved us and He liberated us. And then thirdly, He lifted us. Look at verse 6. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, every single thing in God's plan for the ages circles back to Christ, especially the new, uh, the new life that Christians enjoy. We were made alive together with Christ. We have new life because He had new life first. We've been resurrected from our spiritual deadness, and there's going to be a day where we're resurrected from our physical deadness. Only because Christ was resurrected on our behalf. He lifts us up. He lifted us up spiritually. And He seated us with Him. And Paul's looking at this kind of from, um, from God's perspective, from God's point of view. And in the mind of God, our position in Christ is fixed. In the mind of God, our position in Christ is certain. So those are the what's. What we once were, and then what God did. Let's look at uh, let's look at, at how. Let's look at excuse me. Let's look at why. Let's look at why God did it. Look at verse seven. So that in the, we're dead in our sins, but we're made alive, right? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable, just the riches of His grace, or just grace? No, the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I want to preface my comments on this because I'm going to talk about why God did something. And that freaks me out a little bit because I'm not God. He can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, wherever He wants. But I'm going to give you what I, what I think. I believe the simplest 
and the easiest answer to, to, to why, to why He loves us, why He liberated us, and why He lifts us is that He intends to make believers an eternal display of His grace. And we touched on this last week, um, but it's like every time somebody comes into a saving relationship with the Lord, they become a grace trophy that sits up on God's mantle over His fireplace or up on His shelf or something. And I also, I believe that, that, that He doesn't do that just for us. He doesn't do that just for me. But He does for other people to see the trophy. That Greek word there that is translated, He might show, it's really to display. It's really to prove. It's really to, like, like that word is used of a, of a case where things are on display. It's the same way that an artist would have an art show and he would display all of his craftsmanship and his skill and the way that he paints the canvas. It's that same word. So God displays his redeemed children to the whole world simply to demonstrate his amazing grace. So the text says the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So you got the, the why. And we talked about <clears throat> the what. Now let's talk about the how. And you may have wondered a minute ago when we went over verse 5 why I skipped out on the last part of verse 5 that says, by grace you have been saved. I was not ignoring that. By any means, I was putting it off until now. Paul elaborates on it a little bit in verses 8 and 9 and then again in 13. Look at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so the first how, the big picture is this, by grace, by grace through faith, grace alone, through faith alone. It's not grace plus, it's not faith something. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look, I heard a story a few years ago about a girl speeding through South Georgia, South West Georgia, um, down around, I don't know, Junction City or Geneva or Box Springs, sort of down that way. She's doing 70, y'all, in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. And the popo, this is not a graduation robe, this is a judge's robe, but the popo pulls this girl over. She's doing 70 in a 55. And he gives her a ticket, a $100 ticket, y'all. And she didn't have the money to pay the ticket. She didn't have the money. So she ends up having to go to court over this ticket. She gets to court. The judge says, ma'am, I don't really understand what the question is here. Popo officer, the judge probably didn't say the popo officer. The, the judge says the officer clocked you doing 70. And if I don't know why we're here, even you got to pay the fine. The fine is $100, it's $100. And the lady said, look, I know, I know I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty, but I can't pay it. I don't have the $100. I can't pay, I can't pay that myself. Judge says, well, if you don't pay the ticket, you're go the price has got to be paid. You don't pay the ticket, you're going to have to spend a week in jail. And she says, well, my goodness, I can't pay the ticket, and I don't want to go to jail. Can you just, you know, Mr. Judge, can you just have mercy on me? And the judge, really very matter-of-factly, that judge says to her, I cannot, I cannot change the law. The rules are the rules. We got the rules. They're written down. They're written down. You, if you didn't know the rules, it's too bad. They're, they're written down. You gotta pay a hundred dollars because that is the price for
for this, for this transgression of the law, you gotta pay the hundred dollars or you gotta spend a week in jail. Those are the rules, ma'am. As much as I'd like to be merciful, those are the rules. The price has gotta be paid. And now she's starting to tear up, this, this lady, starting to tear up. And she speaks to him in this little kind of meek voice and she says, I, can't you do something? I, I can't pay it. I don't have the, currency. I don't have the means. I can't, I can't do this myself, she says, but I don't want to be locked up either. Have mercy. She's on her knees in front of him. Have mercy on me. And the judge looks down on her and he, and he unzips, he unzips his robe and he backs off of the bench and he walks down and he puts on puts on his street clothes and he steps down there with her and he opens up his wallet and he puts a hundred dollar bill on the table and then he goes back up there he takes off his jacket and he puts back on his robe And he says, young lady, you've been found guilty of doing 70 in a 55. The law is the law, ma'am. I can't change the law. The rules are the rules. You've got to pay a $100 fine or you've got to spend a week in jail. And he says, oh, it looks like somebody stepped in on your behalf and paid the $100 fine for you when you couldn't do it yourself. Here's the deal, y'all. God saw us. Speeding down the highway of sin. And he zipped down the independent use of his godness. And he put on a jacket of humanity. And he stepped down there with us. Looked just like us. He got down there with us. And he paid a price that you and I could not pay ourselves. We brought nothing to the table. He picked up the tab. And he rose from the dead and he zipped up that his glorified body and he ascended to heaven. And the great news of the gospel is this. There's a bill that, was, that we couldn't pay. We get a bill, we can't pay it. It's already been paid. It's been paid by God Himself in the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Y'all, that is the best news ever. What does it say in verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing. You couldn't do one thing about it. It is a gift. It makes no sense, but it's a gift. Not as a result of works. Because you couldn't do anything. If you could do it yourself, then you could boast. And Paul says, so that no one may boast. Grace has this idea of benevolence or kindness or, or compassion being given to me and you without us ever having done anything to deserve it. And here's the reality. There's nothing that ever required God to provide us with salvation. He'd have been totally justified in condemning every one of us to eternal separation from Himself. Would that South Georgia judge, that judge down in Richland or Geneva or wherever he was, would he have been unjust if he'd have thrown her in jail for a week? 
No, he'd have been just. He'd have been totally just to throw her in jail because the rules are the rules. The price has got to be paid. It's not like the judge said, oh ma'am, you can just go and there will be no price paid. That's not what happened. In spite of the fact that, that, that our actions bring deserved judgment on ourselves, God stepped in and he offers all of us an escape. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. Why did he want to? Because he loves us. No, he loves us with great love. He gives us grace, rich grace, immeasurably rich grace. That, is, that grace is what saves us or delivers us from eternal judgment. God's escape, it belongs to Him. It's His plan. It's His deal. It comes from His mind. And you and I cannot take one smidgen, not one iota of credit for it. All of it. Every single bit of it. The whole bucket of salvation, the grace as well as the faith, it is all a gift from God. We bring nothing. He chose to make salvation possible in this way. He hands it to us. All we can do is just say yes and accept it. Faith is exactly that. It's trustfully accepting from God what He's provided without sometimes us completely understanding what we're receiving. I remember the day I got saved, driving behind the runway at the airport in front of Terrace Point Subdivision. All I knew was that I was messed up. And I wasn't no axe murderer, but I knew that something was wrong. There was a hole in me somewhere and I was messed up. And I got saved. I remember like it was yesterday, this just different feel. I couldn't have explained it. For me, one of the major fears I had was death. I had a major, almost paralyzing fear of death. Instantly it was gone. Well, why was it gone? Because I knew where I'd be for eternity. Other messed up things in my life didn't get fixed that quickly. That was, was fixed just like that. Look, faith is given up on being able to provide what you need for yourself by letting God give what He alone can provide. And you know what? That South Georgia judge, it, I told you a minute ago, it's not like the penalty wasn't paid. It was paid. The $100 was paid. She just didn't have to pay it. The price was paid, but she didn't have to pay it. A righteous judge, a righteous judge, took his robe off, got down there with her, and he paid it for her. That is grace. 100% that is grace. So that's the first how. The second how is this. By His blood. By His blood. And I want to call... Uh, I want to call this how the great exchange. Verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. It's the same image of the, uh, of the prodigal son. You were far off. Way far off, he says, the text says. Now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In this great exchange... Jesus gets our sin, and we get His righteousness. He gets our sin, we get His righteousness. Y'all, in a business transaction, arguably in any transaction, there has to be what is called consideration paid. In a real estate transaction, the consideration is what? The consideration is something of value that a buyer gives a seller 
when they want the house that the seller has. The consideration could be cash. It could be another house. It could be land, like I'm trading you land, something of value that I give you so that you will give me back something of value. Something of value. Something of value has to be exchanged. In our $100 speeding ticket uh, story, the consideration that is paid is the $100. It's the $100. That $100 was valuable consideration that bought her freedom. There has to be something of value, um, uh, something of value that, that crosses from this person to that person. I want to give you a, like, I don't know, a new word. Salvation consideration. What is salvation consideration? What's the consideration that's paid in the transaction between me and Christ? It's the precious blood. It is His blood. His blood is the consideration that bought my freedom. So when I say, when you hear me say that, that there was a price paid, that is what I mean. It's not like your salvation is free. You just didn't have to pay for it. The consideration was the blood on that cross. Listen, 100% central to Christian salvation, the concept, the, uh, the idea of personal salvation for us, is trusting that or the belief that Jesus Christ died a sacrificial death. Verse 13 says that we were far off. We were way far away. But now, thank the Lord again for buts, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. The sacrificial death of Christ. And what did that do? Let me give you about two or three churchy words. It, it provided reconciliation. The relationship with God that was wrecked in the garden is now reconciled. There was... Uh, uh, unreconciliation, I don't know what the word is. Now there is, it, we've been reconciled. So that death brought reconciliation for us. And then it provides redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is to, to purchase back, to buy back. We were bought back from our sinful nature. And then it provides, so reconciliation and redemption, it provides atonement. And atonement just means it's a covering the sin is covered. The sin is forgiven. It provides atonement that for the sins of an individual. In the Old Testament, it was temporary. The high priest would go into the, the Holy of Holies in either the tabernacle or in the temple, and the mercy seat would be in there, which is actually the same word as it is for atonement. But he would go in there, and blood would be spilled on a sheep or a goat or an ox or something. The blood would be spilled on the altar, and there was atonement. I remember as a kid... Growing up Jewish as a kid going on this big holiday called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. It's the day that you ask forgiveness for all the stupid stuff that you did for the year. And I remember chanting this prayer for like an hour. And you say for this, you know, I'm sorry for the sin of this. I'm sorry for the sin of this. Hundreds of different sins that you ask for forgiveness for. Literally an hour of sitting there doing that. And, but, and, and I for, was forgiven temporarily. On this side of the cross, though, Christ fully and finally and once and for all provides atonement, period, for all the dumb stuff that we've done and all the dumb stuff that we're going to do. It's a once and for all final atonement. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Here's what he said. Beautiful, glorious words 
from the 1500s. Martin Luther said, By a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. Y'all, what better deal is what better deal is there to exchange my sin and my stupidity and all my messed upness? I just can give it over there and I get his righteousness. That's the best deal ever. That's like buying a foreclosure in Maple Ridge for like a dollar. I mean, that's the best deal you could ever come along with. Now, that was a crazy analogy. But look, in keeping with Paul's theme here in Ephesians, this theme that we are in Christ, first part of chapter 2, he paints this bleak picture of us. Bleak. We're dead in our sins. We're influenced by Satan. We're slaves to our flesh and our desires, our, 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 our fleshly desires, and we're objects of God's wrath. But God, thank the Lord for buts, but God did something about it. He loved us and He liberated us and He lifted us. Why? Because He loves us so much and He wants us to serve as trophies of grace for the rest of the world to see. And then finally, how did He do it? By grace. We didn't bring anything to the table. Y'all, you can't bring anything to the table. By grace through faith. And then He did it in this most crazy, unlikely way that none of us could ever have come up with by pouring out His own sacrificial blood on the altar. We could never have come. It makes no sense. But the price has got to be paid and He paid the price for us. And I'm telling you, look, man, if y'all... And I know there's folks in here. If, if you have never said yes to that offer, if you have lived your whole life and said, I am just not good enough, the whole point is you're not good enough. There's, you couldn't be good enough. And I couldn't be good enough. So if you've lived your whole life, you've got to come to a point where you say, you know what? No matter what, I'm not good enough. And I just am going to accept the fact that that is my nature. But I'm also going to accept through faith. The grace comes. And through faith I'm going to believe. What am I going to believe? I'm going to believe that Christ died on that cross. I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to believe that Christ died on that cross. And that really did that $100 speeding ticket, y'all. I didn't have to pay it. It was paid for on that cross. So I repent and I believe that. And I ask Him to live inside of me forever. And I'm going to be living with Him in eternity. What better deal is there than that? I'm telling you, if you have not said yes to that offer, today is that day. Look, if, if that's you, I want you all to close your eyes. And I just want you to pray this prayer with me.